The Toby Gribbon Show. Highlights. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Natalie Bennett is a politician and former journalist who was leader of the Green Party of England and Wales from 2012 to 2016. And she's here with us just now. Good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon, Toby. Great and lovely to be with you. I hope you will too. So you woke up on New Year's Day in 2006 with an ambition to change the world. How's that going so far? I've had lots of um, spending, essentially dedicating myself from that point onwards to uh, trying to do that has been fascinating, amazing. One of the great things about my role with the Green Party is all the brilliant people I've met both within the Green Party and the broader Green movement up and down the country who are making great things. So um, you, I've been saying for the uh, best part of a decade now that the future of politics doesn't look like the past and things are going to change. And I think that's more evident than it was in when I became Green Party leader in 2012 and certainly that it was in 2006. And what was it that actually prompted you to transition from working as a journalist into politics? Well, I'd always um, thought that I would get out of journalism at some stage. I mean, I'd spent um, years in Bangkok working for the Bangkok Post, working for United Nations agencies. Before that, I'd worked in journalism in Australia, then finished up uh, through the London Papers, editor of the Guardian Weekly. I was mostly doing international news through those years. And um, I know that, you know, year after year, um, story of famine, story of war, story of disaster after disaster, it wears people down. And I always thought that I'd go either the United Nations route or towards NGOs, um, the, the third sector, um, at some stage. Um, the Green Party politics was not what I expected, but the the underlying desire to change the news rather than report it certainly pointed in that direction. Do you think your background in journalism influenced your perspective on certain issues? It gives me a sort of broad perspective. As a journalist, You, know, I've covered every conceivable issue and as a politician, I'm very much the same. So that makes me perhaps a slightly unusual sort of politician. I mean, my first degree is agricultural science and I can get very geeky about soils. I'm mm. very interested in food security. I'm very interested in antimicrobial resistance, for example, and broader issues around novel entities. So my background influences what I'm interested in, but also the journalism means that I have a background. You know, I've 
written a story on practically any subject you can possibly imagine over the years, and that gives me a foundation to start on any subject in politics. Generally, in politics in this country, you have a health secretary who doesn't really have a background in health a lot of the time, and other secretaries like that. So do you think that maybe you're an odd one out, or maybe it's common in the Green Party where you kind of have a background in it and know what you're talking about? Well, it's interesting. I was only commenting to someone the other day just how many women from a scientific background and a sort of STEM background that there are are, are in the um, you know at high levels in the Green Party. Uh, Sean Berry, former co-leader, um, chemistry. Uh, Carla Denia, current co-leader, is a um, wind t- uh, turbine engineer. Um, there's a lot of people in the in the Green Party and a scientific background. But I think in terms of politics, it doesn't necessarily mean. I mean, if you're the health secretary or something, it doesn't mean you have to be a doctor. Mm. But what we have is an enormous shortage of people across politics generally with a scientific background. And we saw this, for example, recently in the debate in the House of Lords, and even worse in the Commons, on the genetic technology bracket precision breeding, oh no, it isn't, uh, my addition, Bill. Um, there just wasn't really a, you know, a significant number of people with the, with the scientific background to engage in the debate. Or even, you know, it doesn't mean you have to have a scientific background. You have to be prepared to actually engage in and understand and learn new stuff. Yeah. Um, and we just, people go, oh, it's science, it's all too difficult. And we really cannot afford politicians to do that these days. In your sort of early years, you encountered limitations and stereotypes because of your gender. Do you think that's shaped your perspective and your advocacy for women's issues? Absolutely. And beyond that, I mean, I became a feminist at age five because I was told because you're a girl, you're not allowed to have a bicycle. Um, And, you know, my five-year-old self got thought that was not fair. And I went through certainly all of my school years being told all the time, not only to should I, was I not able to do things, not allowed to do something because I was a girl, but I shouldn't even want to do things because I was a girl. Uh, and that shaped my background, but that you know extends beyond feminism. It's also a sense of, you know, I think everyone in the world should have the chance to develop to their full human potential. And I enormously believe in human potential. And it's one of the reasons why I'm you know an absolute fan of universal basic income, because I think if we had a universal basic income, people would have the chance to decide for themselves how to spend their own time, energy and talents. And I think that would be an important step towards an amazing world dealing with so many of the crises that we're now facing. You've certainly, in your life, achieved your potential because you were the leader of the Green Party. When you started out in politics, was it an ambition to get that far? Absolutely not. I'm I'm laughing because, I mean, when I joined the Green Party on the 1st of January 2006, it was simply a do-something moment. Um, And indeed, um, in the middle of 2012, um, I, I was looking to take voluntary redundancy from being editor of the Guardian Weekly, having done it for five years. Uh, I had a lovely plan that I was going to take that money and um, have that year to write a book. I was going to bake bread and uh, grow (laughs) vegetables and, you know, have a lovely time. Uh, And then Caroline Lucas rang up uh, and said she wasn't restanding for the leadership of the Green Party. And I put down the phone and said, let's have the polite version, oh, hell. Um, uh, (laughs) Because, you know, there in in May 2012, that was not my intention at all. Um, But, um, you know, I, I was essentially asked to put myself forward Forward. I thought this is something I can do that I can see some things that are really worth doing that there's a pattern to be set here and so I went for it it was the first really contested um, seriously contested election we'd had as Green Party leader um, because Caroline had been it for the previous two terms that the post existed and so it was a moment um, of really saying well I'm going to go for it and see what happens and that's one of my philosophies in life is you know you can't necessarily map your path out uh, you see opportunities possibilities there and you try 
try and take them and see what happens. Did you ever feel overshadowed by your predecessor, Caroline Lucas, because she was still an MP and you weren't? And it has been argued that some people viewed her as still the face of the Green Party, even after she'd gone. Absolutely. You know, in one sense, um, yes, I think that's absolutely true. And it doesn't worry me at all. <laughs> I'm quite used to people, you know, still to this day, uh, people will email me or ring me up and say, oh, we tried to get Caroline to do this and she couldn't. So could you do this? <laughs> uh, and then they usually go, oh, perhaps I shouldn't have said that. And I'm like, hey, it's fine. My ego can take it. It's absolutely fine. Um, you know, Caroline has you know, spent decades um, since she was elected as MEP in 1999, you know, um, being the fa- one of the faces of the Green Party, perhaps the face of the Green Party. Um, and, uh, of course, that is hugely important to us. But one of the things is, you know, in the Green Party, we re- view leadership very differently. We don't think of it as a greasy pole that you clamber up to the top of and cling there until someone rips you off kicking and screaming. <laughs> you know, leadership is, I have a saying that everyone in the Green Party is a leader, and I very much believe that to be the case. If you join the Green Party and try and create change in your community, in national policy area, whatever you're doing, you know, everyone is a leader. And so we don't see leadership as a pyramid. We very much see it as a flat structure where everyone's leading us, you know, in using their particular skills and talents in different kinds of ways. Because you weren't an MP, did that make it easier to be the leader? Because you only really had one job. Exactly. And I think for the Green Party, particularly at that stage of development, that was a very logical position to be in. Um, because I essentially spent the, most of those four years traveling the country, visiting local Green Parties, um, working internally in the party, growing the party, supporting other people. And so I was never in those years focused on getting elected myself. I actually got, a, when, when I stood to be leader of the Green Party, I explicitly said I wasn't, you know, I wasn't going to seek to get myself elected. I was seeking to get lots of other people elected. And it took um, a little bit of time for that to come through. But if you look at our, you know, our recent local council elections results, uh, I think I can say that you know, the foundations that we built in those years are now really bear- bearing fruit. And what do you think were some of your biggest achievements during your time as leader? I think if you want to look at one figure, one fact, one statistic, uh, in the 2015 general election, we got more votes than we got in every previous general election added together. And if we actually had a democratic electoral system, uh, we would have had 25 MPs. That's 3.8% of the vote. That would have given us 25 MPs. Um, So um, that general election, the fact that we were there in the the leader debates for the first time, um, it was a huge step up for the Green Party. There was the Green Surge, huge numbers of people joined the Green Party. And I mean, in the last couple of years, lots of people who joined the Green Party in 2015 have now been elected as councillors. So it was a huge job of building. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, you know, I, I was able to say, because the Green Party, the leadership, you have a two-year term, and I chose not to restand after two terms, which is what Caroline had done before me. Uh, and I think you know, that's setting out the model of saying, you go in, you do a job, uh, and, it, and then you go and do something else. And what I then went to, which didn't work out so well was was a ran for Sheffield Central uh, in the 2017 general election. That general election came a bit early for us, so the timing just didn't quite work. But um, it's a case of not, you know, leaving things in a stasis. We all have to grow and develop. That's something we, we kind of know from ecology, and I think there's lots of lessons for our society from ecology. And there was a significant boost in party membership as well as votes. So what do you attribute that success to? 
think it, it was, and with with I'm confident we've we're starting to see this, and we will see this again. Is people are seeing that the old parties, the old tired politics, with their philosophies from the 19th century and earlier, really don't have the answers for where we are today. We're looking for something different. And if the Green Party, if you look at our philosophical basis, you know, the Green Party philosophical basis has the foundations there for building a different kind of society, one that works for the common good, one that understands we've got enough resources on this planet for everyone to have a decent life if we just share them out fairly. So people are looking for a new um, image of society, a new way forward, and that's what the Green Party is offering. And you've alluded to why this is, kind of, but despite the increase in membership and votes, it didn't really translate into increased seats. So was that kind of annoying that, because you're a small party and the way the system works, you could do really well but don't really get anything for it? Annoying's one word for it, but I, yeah. you know, I'm not so focused in in that impact of the um, uh, the impact on the Green Party. I think it's a huge um, measure of um, the lack of democracy in our society. And I would say that the result in the 2016 Brexit referendum entirely reflects um, people's frustration with uh, the fact, you know, people wanted to take back control. That was the slogan that won the uh, the um, referendum for the Brexiteers. And people feel like they're not in control of their own lives and their own communities. And they're not because they can't elect the politicians who they actually want to elect. They, they don't have a representative parliament. Boris Johnson got 100% of the power in 2019 with 44% of support from the people who voted, around about 35% of eligible voters. Um, and you know, I've got a hashtag, no way to run a country. <laughs> what would you say to somebody who's thinking of voting for the Green Party? Maybe they agree with you 100%, but they think it might be a wasted vote because in most constituencies, you're maybe going to come third or fourth. First of all, I'd point out that there are many elections um, occurring in the UK. Um, if we've just had local elections where we elected um, a two, a 200 new councillors elected. We now have a record number of number of councillors. If you look at the graph, uh, and every single one of those in England and Wales was elected under the first-past-the-post system. Uh, so, of course, we talk all the time about the need to give Britain a modern, democratic, functional constitution, uh, but we don't have to wait for that. And you know, when we're talking about the next general election, whenever it might be, um, uh, there's great potential in uh, with Carla Denyer in uh, Bristol, uh, with Adrian Ramsey in Waveney Valley, uh, with Ellie Chowns in North Herefordshire. And there's what I call AN Other Seat. And I don't know which <laughs> one that is. Um, and or even which ones it is. But, you know, the world is changing fast. Lots of people are now seeing Greens running their council, part of rainbow coalitions, liking what they see. And you know, I've long been saying the future of politics doesn't look like the past. And that's, I think, you know, very, very evident. So vote for what you want um, and you might just, you know, there's a good chance that you'll get it. And you will also be, sent, be sending a signal that this is the kind of future society you want. Whereas if you vote for parties that are the more tired of old, same old, same old, you're sending a signal that you're happy enough with how things are. And if somebody's absolutely adamant in voting for one of the major parties, because maybe where they live in their council ward or whatever, if they vote for Green, they've got no chance. Which one would you say is the least evil? Well, I would say uh, that, that's easy. Never never vote for a Tory. <laughs> um, that, 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 that's, a very, that's a very easy option um, uh, in terms of um, that's a political philosophy based on inequality, based on privatisation, based on the dominance of the 
financial sector, uh, you know, a handful of housing markets um, have just been looking at, you know, the stats of um, they've just uh, forbidden the Green ministers, green Minister in Scotland uh, from including glass bottles in the bottle deposit scheme, having just had a donation from the Wine and Spirits Trade Association. Um, so um, that's a very easy one. Uh, after that, I'll, I'll leave it up to people. But, you know, <laughs> get Greens elected, vote Green is always my message. Now, you were given a peerage in 2019. What are your views on the House of Lords itself? And was that a spider or something that just went across the webcam? Uh, possibly. It, it, it might have been a fly. Um, <laughs> right. uh, the, uh, it's summer, you know. It's, yeah. it's the weather we're having these days. We will we'll talk to climate change, like, to climate emergency later. Yeah. Um, sorry, I've now entirely forgotten what the question was. Yeah, so what are your views on the House of Lords itself? Oh, okay. Very, very easy. As I told the Yorkshire Post, you can still find the story out there. When I when I was um was was offered the peer when it was announced that I had the peerage, uh, my aim is to abolish my own job as soon as possible. Um, uh, you, I, it's sometimes considered a life sentence because as it, current things are currently arranged, you are there for life. Uh, yeah. But my intention is, is is to um institute as part of a much broader uh, institution of a modern democratic functional constitution to have a fully elected second chamber. Um, um, uh, and so, therefore, um, I won't be there uh, through the peerage at least anymore. How do you imagine the chamber looking, and how will you go about changing it? Because it's something that's maybe deep rooted in our parliamentary system, and it might take a while to change and convince people. Well, I, I don't think that people really need to be convinced that we should not have ninety-two hereditary peers uh, still in the chamber. People who were there simply because of who their father, and it nearly always is their father. All of the hereditaries are currently. Mail. Um, I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Indeed, because they're a Church of England bishop. Um, I think there's very few people who will defend uh, the current structure or the patronage structure that puts um, people in because they've donated a large chunk of money to the Conservative Party. Um, you know, that's no way, hashtag again, no way to run a country. There's a thing <laughs> coming along here. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think people's, you know, desire for change, but I've actually got this all set out and I inherited this from Jenny Jones, my fellow Green peer, so I can't take any credit for it. But there is the Elections and Other Reform House of Lords Bill brackets 2000. 2019. And that sets up a house where people are elected for one 10-year term on a, on a five-year in and out cycle, so 50% at a time. Um, you can't go then from the Lords to the Commons. Uh, you can't do a second term. So the idea is this is something you regard as a term of service, that you serve the nation, you go in and do that for 10 years, and then you go off and do something else. Um, and it's also set up in a way to really encourage the crossbenchers, which are the good part of the House of Lords. That's the non-party people like John Bird, founder of The Big Issue, was Simon Woolley, Lord Woolley, Operation Black Vote founder, uh, Deborah Bull, used to be a ballet dancer. Yeah, really good people like that who good, do good work based on their professional life. It's possible to set up a list of people who could stand under that banner, and that's something that our system aims to encourage. And I think one of the things people say, oh, you know, would, would people vote for it? But if you look at Australia, for example, where they have an upper house that's elected through proportional representation, and people vote really differently to the Senate in Australia than they do for the lower house because people are saying, right, this is a house of review. This is the kind of person I want checking things. And it's possible to set up a system where people can vote for that in that kind of way. And would you stand for election in the House of Lords or will you be done with it when you have achieved your goal? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, the, the thing about politics is they never say never. You know, <laughs> I, I, I sometimes say, you know, when the, when the first Green government comes in, that's when I retire and go off to write history books. Um, <laughs> but that might not be true. So I might not be able to um, um, to, to, to make myself do that. Uh, I think we'll have to put that in the we'll see basket. I mean, there's plenty of other things I'd like to do in my life. I've, I've got my first book coming out now. I'm talking to a publisher about a second. Um, I wouldn't have any shortage of things to do and it would still be doing politics, whether it would be in the House or not, who knows. Yes. Now, you mentioned the climate crisis. So if there was a Green government right now and let's say you were the Prime Minister, what would you be doing? In terms of some of the easy direct things to do, um, stop all new oil and gas, um, exploration and development. And you know, you might say that's just what the Labour Party's done finally, and we're very pleased, pleased to see that where Greens lead, others follow. We'd be looking at a massive um, effort to train up people and to insulate uh, the nation's homes to lift the terrible standard of housing stock because the, the cleanest greenage energy you can possibly have is the energy you don't need to use. And that, of course, would help tackle poverty um, as well. Uh, and I, you know, some of the other things that might be so obvious to you, um, education policy, I think we desperately need to stop schools being forced to be exam factories and give people an education for life, not just exams. So let's, you know, things we can do quickly, let's abolish Ofsted, abolish SATs, uh, bring back um, uh, uh, assessment uh, rather than um, just exams uh, for higher levels, open up our education system. So give people again uh, and bring in a universal basic income, as I've already mentioned. Um, that would be a way of, of giving people security that they haven't got now when so many people are really worried about being able to keep a roof over their head, food on the table. Do you think that that issue there, the current cost of living crisis, intersects with climate change generally? Absolutely. I mean, the climate emergency is having real pressure, real impact.
impact um, on food security. And, you know, we have come a little bit of a way. I, I was having a really good um, farming event last week, uh, a week or so back, um, talking about food security. And this was after the government's farm to fork um, summit that they had at Downing Street, which was a pretty weak effort. But at least it was a step upward from um, Boris Johnson, who, when asked about food security, said, oh, that's a job for the supermarkets. So at least, you know, we are seeing small steps in the direction of understanding we cannot keep relying on the rest of the world to feed us. We're relying on other people's labour, other people's soils, other people's water supplies to feed us. Um, we absolutely have to focus on producing food for ourselves um, and producing fresh, healthy food. You know, one of my one of my aims in life, and you'll, you'll probably hear me yelling from the rooftops on Twitter when this happens, <laughs> is I finally get the government to acknowledge that ultra-processed food is a category and a huge issue for public health and well-being. Um, so there's all of those kind of issues that, that really desperately need me to be tackled around food. And, you know, the other thing, of course, is, is insulation, home energy efficiency. Those are two of the big things. The other thing is, of course, relying on private supply of our housing stock. And that means we need to build vastly more genuinely affordable homes. Um, and that's something Sean Berry, uh, one of our London Assembly members, has been focusing on, seeing how we getting housing very often was public housing that was sold into the private sector, getting it back into the public sector. Now, it seems a lot of people out there feel very strongly about these issues and have taken matters into their own hands, which we've seen some action from groups like Insulate Britain and Just Stop Oil. What do you think about their actions? I think the Green Party in our philosophical basis, we say that acknowledge that non-violent direct action has always been necessary to achieve some of the big essential changes we've seen in the past. The suffragettes is the one that everyone always talks about, but I can point to a couple of more recent ones than that. Um, uh, fracking. Um, we have no fracking in the UK. Um, there's bans in um, Scotland and Wales and a moratorium in England. That was, you know, I stood at many an anti-fracking camp. I stood doing um, welfare support to people who chained themselves to the road and, and you know, endured huge amounts of suffering uh, to make the point to slow things down. Uh, and we have no fracking. Uh, in Sheffield, the tree controversy that some people might remember when the the council with a privatised contract was slashing down street trees. Um, people put them put themselves on the line. And at the end of the day, um, uh, we now have a wonderful street tree um, policy in Sheffield. You know, the, the council worker doesn't so much as brush up against a tree without checking with the local community first. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that nonviolent direct action can achieve. And, um, you know, I think is frequently sadly necessary um, when the government refuses to listen both to the science and to public opinion. Now, do you disagree with any policies the Green Party have at the moment? It's interesting because it is actually a huge luxury that I can say no to that question. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I mean, to be to be honest, a few years ago, um, I would have had to say that I had some doubts about our policy on fluoridation of water because I'd absorbed the kind of general public view that, oh, you know, tackling tooth decay, particularly in deprived areas, but actually, we've seen both increasing research, and I've thought about it more, um, and you know, the evidence of the benefits simply isn't there. Um, and it's a cover, an excuse to not take the kind of actions that we actually need to take to tackle what's a huge problem of tooth decay in deprived areas, which means targeted efforts, targeted at the people who need the help, the families, the children that need it the most. Um, so that is a luxury, I must admit, uh, although one of the nice things about the Green Party is that the Green Party doesn't whip. So that means, you know, if you're an elected Green or you're representing the Green Party, we don't say you have to stand up there you know, 
like as other parties do and say, I agree with the party policy, even though everyone can see you've really got your arm twisted behind your back and they know you were fighting furiously against the policy last week. And that that whipping is one of the things that causes real um, distrust of politics. Whereas in the Green Party, say if you're you know elected Green, we ask you if you don't agree with the party policy to say, well, you know, my view is this, but the party policy is that. And that's something we are comfortable with because we understand people should be able to speak with their conscience. Does that confuse voters sometimes? Because maybe if they vote for a Green candidate, they expect them to toe the line. I think um, people know what Greens are standing for, which is tackling the climate emergency, giving people true security in life, um, you making the nation, the planet work for people and for nature. And I think people can also understand that sometimes there may be different routes to get to the same conclusion. There's mm. different ways of, of going that way and people may have different views on how you get to a particular point and that will I think you know will always be I mean you know we're not going to have someone in the Green Period Party who's going yay yay nuclear weapons we love them no 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 (laughs) you know that is not an acceptable green you know there are you know there are things that would just would not would not fit you know you you would not be there you would be being the party into disrepute but where you actually see this happening it's it's usually right we're all trying to get to this goal there's two different ways of doing it there's not one right answer and people have different views and that's that's growing up politics what do you like to do to relax when you're not working in politics and writing books well um, the writing books is um is well it's kind of well, it's, it's sort of work and, and and sort of sort of pleasure as well um i mean I, I just i love reading different things i love listening to podcasts I'll, I'll put in a little advert i have many favorite podcasts and i usually uh, when i can i listen to them when i'm walking in the countryside um the new books network podcast which is a whole range of um authors of academic monographs of every subject you can possibly imagine under the sun um are being interviewed for an hour about their book which is almost like reading the book and so you can read you know get information about all sorts of fascinating subjects and there is a huge number of podcasts out there and, and i just i you know one of the things i love most is learning something i know absolutely nothing about yeah. um and, and and learning about it um and i mean i'm just at the moment by chance I, I've, i'm halfway through um one on um Jewish life in the um, in the medieval Middle East, um, which is based on a whole lot of amazing documents found in Cairo, and you know, just listening to that and hearing about that and learning about that is just fascinating. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Are there any particular TV shows that you're enjoying watching at the moment? I'm afraid I'm a terrible person to ask about TV shows because I just don't, I don't watch TV. I don't, I, I have occasionally had a Netflix subscription. I've got a weakness for the the Last Kingdom series. And actually they've just had, had, had a movie out that finishes off the Bernard Cornwall books. Um, and it is my intention to get a, a one month Netflix subscription and watch that at some stage. But sorry, <laughs> popular culture is not my special subject, I'm afraid. <laughs> so you wouldn't appear on any TV shows at any point. You're not thinking of going back to Australia around November time to eat some kangaroo's <laughs> testicles. Uh, being a vegetarian, I think that would be a bit of a problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think they give you, like, vomit fruit if you're a vegetarian, which is even worse, apparently. It, you know, I have a dim idea what you're talking about, and that's literally it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've got your book, which is coming out soon. It's called Change Everything, and it's based on people crowdfunding it, right? It's published through Unbound, and I really love this model because it's kind of like if you go back a few centuries, it used to be that um, aristocrats uh, would pay for an author to write a book and get a book published, and you know, so there'd be a large bit in the front saying this aristocrat is a wonderful person, and the author <laughs> would write 
all this probably untrue spiel about how wonderful they are. This is the democratic alternative. It's a bit like, you know, lots of people look to the podcasts I know are funded through Patreon, other crowdfunding models. So it's a chance where everyone has a chance to contribute. And that very much echoes the contents of the book because the, um, the subtitle is Common Sense Politics for the Age of Shocks. And as I make clear in it, this really is essentially a boiling down of, of 10 years of public meetings where I've been speaking to engaging in conversation, answering questions. And indeed, lots of the things in the book have come from things, ideas people have given me, people have said in public meetings up and down the country. So it is you know, as democratically created as a book could possibly be. And so that the model really fits. And just to put the little advert in, change everything, common sense politics for the age of shocks. If you Google that, you can still um, put from £10 upwards, uh, which will get you the ebook. Um, still get your name inside, uh, testing to the fact that you supported it. What if people don't want their name to say that they supported it? I don't know, maybe they want to read it as an impartial observer. You can still, you, you have a choice right up to, to when, the, when the book goes to the printers, essentially. So you'll have a choice for about a year whether you finally want to or not, or if you change your mind later or whatever. Uh, so, you know, you, you put money in without putting your name in, but I really like the fact that there's going to be you know, many hundreds of people um, who contribution to the book is actually recorded in its pages. Now, what are your predictions for the Green Party at the next general election, shall we say, in terms of seats and votes? Votes? I haven't really worked out the figures on the votes, but certainly <laughs> in terms of seats, um, you know, I think um, five seats and upwards. Um, mm. I've already named some of some, you know, the seats, uh, Carla Denyer in Bristol, uh, Adrian Ramsey in Waveney Valley, uh, Ellie Chowns in North Herefordshire, um, and you know, a mystery one or two or more coming from who knows where. Um, uh, so I think you know, five seats and upwards. And of course, there's a, there's some people are going around suggesting you know this might all next election might be a done deal and Labour might sweep it through, and that's possible. But I think it's actually unlikely. So five seats could turn out to be very significant indeed. Yes. Um, but what I'm also also focused on, and you know, the, the next election where we know the result is, um, is uh, we know when it's going to be um, is the next May next year there'll be another big set of council elections and we've now got at last count 473 uh, principal authority council elections and that's um, you know up from 75 eight years ago um, uh, we're aiming for 900 councillors after those coming elections and that's you know, a very nice number but would also mean in, in the local government association we'd then have our own group in the local government association so it will be yeah. another real step forward for the party. Well, where are we able to keep up to date with you and find the book, of course? Okay, well, the, the book is, um, if you look on uh, on unbound.co.uk, um, you'll find Natalie Bennett or look on my website, which is nataliebennett.org.uk. Uh, um, uh, you will find me on uh, Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, on LinkedIn uh, and on TikTok, one of the few members of the House of Lords on TikTok. <laughs> yes. Well, just before we go, to put you completely on the spot, is there a particular song that we can play for you? Ooh, um, okay, this is, this is going to be very, very um, uh, uh, reflecting my age, um, <laughs> but um, I think it's a very, very powerful anti-war song, um, drawing on my Australian origins. I was only 19 
um, a song about a young man going off to war and coming back maimed. And, you know, it's a sign of what bad political choices do. Um, and, you know, I want to look forward and be hopeful, but we can look at the mistakes of the past and let's say never again, let's not keep heading in this direction. Well, many thanks for joining us today. It's been great having you here. Great. Lovely. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks very much, Toby. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The throbbing pulse of sound, the Toby Gribbon Show.